lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Well, the wonderful and wise garden author, Barbara Pleasant, is on today's show, and we're talking about her book, Homegrown Pantry, a gardener's guide to selecting the best varieties and planting the perfect amounts for what you want to eat year-round. Whether you've mastered gardening basics or you're just getting started, you'll enjoy edible gardening so much more if you keep your eye on the prize, the harvest. Barbara shares tips from decades of her own gardening experience and from growers across North America to offer planting, care, and harvesting refreshers with in-depth profiles of the 55 most popular crops, including beans, beets, squash, tomatoes, and much more to keep your pantry stocked throughout the year. David Ellis, the editor of the American Gardener magazine, said this about Barbara's book. If you're looking for a single book that can take you from planning and planting a food garden through harvesting, preserving, and cooking your produce, Homegrown Pantry is it. Barbara Pleasant offers savvy advice on what vegetables to plant and how much to grow, plus dozens of time and flavor-saving tips. And I couldn't agree more. Plus, Barbara is just so approachable and practical. You're going to really enjoy all of the tips and insights she offers on growing edibles, including veggies, fruits, and herbs, and preserving your garden harvest. Homegrown Pantry with Barbara Pleasant, that's the topic of today's show. And it's coming up after an update on the listener community for the show and this week's Garden News Roundup. But first, I'd like to start out by saying thank you for listening to the Still Growing Podcast this week. If you've just found the show, I'd like to give you a special welcome. And if you're coming back for more, I thank you for being here. And of course, I always like to say that I hope that you're listening to a bunch of gardening podcasts because it's such a wonderful way to grow and learn as a gardener. In fact, on the last episode, I asked for your feedback for gardening shows that you enjoy so that we can share share and grow from each other. And listener Phil Coster did just that. He jumped in our Facebook group and he shared some of the podcasts he enjoys listening to. So in addition to the Joe Gardner podcast that was mentioned last week, Phil also listens to the Gardener Tip of the Week and Epic Gardening. So there are two more good podcasts for you to check out. Listener Beth Engel chimed in. She said she loves Garden Nerd. And Phil said, if you like Garden Nerd, you'll probably like Epic Gardening. It's a shorter podcast with more direct advice like Garden Nerd. Then Beth shared that she also listens to Garden Fork Radio and Gardener's Question Time. And of course, Carla Deanna mentioned my sentimental favorite, which is A Way to Garden with Margaret Roach. So if you're looking for more gardening podcasts, check those out. 
As always, I'm sincerely honored that you're spending some time here listening to the Still Growing Podcast. And if you're looking for a deeper conversation, I'd also like to invite you to join the listener community for the show. It's a free private Facebook group that I host for listeners of the show. And these folks are made up of gardeners of all skill levels and locations. And you can find it on Facebook by typing in the name of our group into the search bar. Just search for the Still Growing Podcast Group, and the listener community will show up at the top of the search results, and then you can just request to join. Now, there are a number of benefits that you can enjoy by joining the group. First, you get access to all of the great garden articles that I curate for you. They'll show up in your Facebook newsfeed. Second, the group is the only place I go to pick lucky listeners for any show giveaways. And Barbara is giving away a copy of her book, Homegrown Pantry. So if you'd like a chance to win, you've got to be in the group. Third, you get a chance to interact with the great guests that have been on the show, like Barbara. And finally, there's no spam in this group. The content that's shared with the listener community is something I work very hard to make sure is helpful and worthwhile for you. Everything I post is curated with you in mind to help you and your garden grow. Plus, it's free and easy to join. So the next time you're in Facebook, just type in Still Growing Podcast Group and the group will pop up and then just request to join. With that, I'd like to welcome new members to the group, Diane White-Barnard, Beth Teal, Jenny Poyarina, Razak Mwari, Rose Camp, Richard Gamble, Rick Partridge, Sherifat Baltistani, Cindy Higley, Catherine Trainer, Heather Adkins, Pete Colonia, Jesse Lavora, Charlotte Shoneman, Dee Saul, and Nettie Edwards. Welcome, you guys. Well, there were a number of great posts in the community from listeners this week. Listeners shared beautiful pictures and videos of their gardens. Patricia Chandler Newport shared her passion for native flowers. And this included obedient plant. She shared a number of photos of her blooming obedient plant. And I was surprised to see how many people use obedient plant in their gardens since most people consider obedient plant to be invasive. And yet there are a number of listeners that have been able to successfully control it in their garden. Sue Luftig shared that she loves her obedient plant too. Hers are the white blooming ones. Patricia's photos were from a native wetland restoration project that she did a few years ago. Susan Scholler McKenna said she was given a clump years ago and told they were larkspur, but then she figured out what they are, and she said they're super easy to grow in her garden, and of course they are. And then Jennifer Conow acknowledged their thuggish nature. She said, I love my obedient plant, although it's not exactly obedient in the garden. She said, mine have not spread as much as I'd like them to yet, so they're not bad spreaders where I am. But even if they do, I suspect there will always be someone who wants to take some as they're pretty plants. Then Patricia Chandler Newport shared some really cool pictures of some sort of cicada. 
He had just come out of his exoskeleton. His wings were still soft. And she not only had pictures, but a video of this little guy crawling around up her arm, actually. It was a very cool video. And Patricia said she had never seen one hatch out of its old skin before. She said it was fascinating to watch. And she said the wings were as soft as fabric. (laughs) And then listener Susan McKenna said, that's fascinating. I'd love to see it in person but I'm not sure if I could deal with it crawling on me. Ah, He looked pretty harmless. Listener Connie Bowers shared that she finally found monarch caterpillars on her native swamp milkweed. That's fantastic. It's great if you're planting milkweed when you finally get a chance to see a caterpillar on your milkweed. That is just such a rush. Listener Barbara Japal shared beautiful images of her Adenium obesum desert rose flowering abundantly in her garden. The star-shaped petals are gorgeous. And Christopher Yoder shared pictures of his as well. He said it's his favorite tropical. Listener John Brian Silverio shared his passion for growing clematis or clematis. And this struck a chord with many listeners. Lots of folks love this plant. Tori Skiza says she's growing hers through some yews and a forsythia. It's a great idea. And Amy Monteith shared that Deborah Prinzing's podcast called Slow Flowers did a great episode on clematis with Linda Butler. So if you're interested, give that a listen. Then Christopher Yoder also shared some gorgeous pictures of a water lily or purple lotus. That was very striking. And speaking of purple flowers, Kathleen Brown Bonafonte shared her passion flower plant. She had one plant from last year, and it's growing like crazy this year. It was really spectacular. Then listener Preston Wright shared some gorgeous photos of a meadow after all the rain in St. Paul, Minnesota. And what I especially loved about his images is that he used the panoramic view So if you haven't checked those out yet, I hope you take some time to look at these 360-degree photos. They're super inspiring, and maybe they'll inspire you to take those kinds of pictures in your garden, which is such a great idea. It's a definite to-do before you head in for winter. And then finally, listener John Lowen put together a wonderful slideshow of images from his garden. And I loved this idea as well, putting together a simple slideshow of images capturing your garden for the month of August. Great idea, John. In listener plant IDs, Jody Callahan wrote in and said, can you tell me what this flowering vine is? It's a weed, but I love the light blue flowers that come out each morning this time of year in my zone 7A garden in Northern Virginia. And listeners were quick to respond, this is morning glory. And listener Amy Steinhauser said, it's only a weed if it grows where you don't want it and or if it takes over. Lots of people plant morning glories every year along fences and railings or in pots, and the seeds are sold in stores. That color is called heavenly blue. And depending on your location, it may or may not be invasive. Then listener Julie Heinen asked about the plant that is growing amongst her tomatoes. And it turns out it's deadly nightshade. So I appreciate Julie sharing that photo with our group so that people can see what it looks like. 
and how it grows in the garden and how folks get rid of it. Julie also shared images of some caterpillars that were in her garden and asked for help with IDing them. Turns out they are black swallowtail caterpillars. And Jen McGinnis of the blog Frau Zinni correctly shared that they were younger caterpillars. They were younger black swallowtails. Then Igor Skokin asked about a vine that was climbing on his fence that had these small mottled fruits on them. And right away, people jumped in and said, those are cucamelons. You can pickle them. You can eat them right out of the garden. You can put them in a salad. And as Patricia Chandler Newport said, cucamelon, Mexican gherkin, mouse melon, all names for this delicious tiny cucumber. They're very cute. In listener questions this week, John Brian Silverio asked, can sunflowers benefit from deadheading? But unlike many flowers that'll give you a second flush of blooms after you deadhead, sunflowers don't work that way. They won't produce more blooms if you deadhead them. And as many listeners kindly pointed out, they leave the old blooms for the birds. So many wonderful birds come to a sunflower garden. Listener Danny Perkins shared a great tip for all of us, and that is to be careful before you pull out any plants. Danny was doing some weeding, and he was about to pull out some milkweed that he didn't want in a particular spot for next year, so he wanted to make sure it didn't go to seed. But upon closer inspection, he counted 13 monarch caterpillars in that part of the garden. So he's holding off on removing that milkweed, but he also shared that his attempts to raise some caterpillars in captivity have failed. And Maureen Bonners offered her tips. She said she usually waits until the monarch cats are big and almost ready to pupate before taking them off the plants. Then she puts them in a butterfly habitat and feeds them fresh milkweed every day. They usually crawl to the top of whatever habitat you've created for them to pupate. And then in 10 to 14 days, they become a butterfly. So that's Maureen's tip. Great insight here, Maureen. Thanks for that. Listener Deb Gibson shared some caterpillars on her milkweed that were not monarchs. These were tussock moths. And again, if you've planted milkweed for monarchs, you're probably also going to see tussock. These are little caterpillars that I call Halloween caterpillars because they're orange and black with little white hairs they actually look pretty hairy and be careful not to touch them because they have these urticating hairs that can be super irritating to your skin. So these tussock caterpillars are not like the monarch caterpillars at all. So if you see orange and black and white caterpillars with lots of hair on your milkweed, stay away from those guys. Listener Jody Callahan said she wanted to hear from anyone who's collected cilantro or coriander seeds after it goes to flower. She had collected some for the first time and wanted to try using some as a spice, as well as trying to plant some of these seeds. And the tips that came in were not to wash them, just to rub them off on a kitchen towel, 
That was from Patricia Chandler Newport. Listener Bernadette Ward said, toasted and ground cilantro or coriander seeds are is an excellent way to utilize their unique flavor. Sheila Chilson said, save, dry, and use for seed or spice. And Kimberly Dahlbeck said, make sure you dry them well. She put some in a plastic bag last year, not realizing they needed to be dried, and they were all mold when she took them out to plant this year. So great tips from listeners there. And then listener Anne-Marie Altman had a similar question. She's trying to collect seeds from flowers for next year. She's gathering wildflowers from friends and marigold from her own garden. And she's looking for a rule of thumb on how dry they should be before she gathers seeds. And Patricia Chandler Newport had a great tip here. She said, stuff like marigold and zinnia, she collects at any stage after the flower is dead or near dead. She puts them in a big nursery tray, the kind you buy flats if flowers are in them. And then she tosses it on a shelf in her greenhouse. So that's what she does with all of her seed. So the seeds live loose in this open tray on a shelf until the following spring. She's never had a problem except sometimes the chipmunks can eat some. So that's a great tip. In listener love, listener Maureen Bonds shared how very much she enjoyed the still growing episode that covered the echinacea evolution. That was covered back in episode 580, so 580. And Maureen shared a photo that she took at the Mount Cuba Center where the new echinacea trial is about to get underway. And I loved her photo. In fact, I looked it up. I looked what the Mount Cuba Center is doing about their trial. And here's what they put on their website. Due to the excitement and rapid development of new coneflower cultivars, some of the top performers from this study may be difficult to find. However, Mount Cuba Center will be reevaluating this genus in 2018 in order to develop a more current list of recommended cultivars. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Listener Anne-Marie Altman enjoyed the episode featuring Karen Rexroad and the Plant Explorers, Karen's wonderful presentation about plant exploration. That was back in episode 582. And Anne-Marie found a great post that was featured in the Washington Post titled, How America's Frenzy for Japanese Plants Brought Beauties and a mega weed. This was a great article. And Karen chimed in. Karen Rexrode read this post and said, some of our worst thugs, plants from Japan, China, and Korea, the very places where plant exploration was most intense, especially the vines. The vines can be especially problematic in the United States. Then listener Angie Laturi of Angie the Freckled Rose, that's her blog, as well as Jen McGinnis of the blog Frau Zinni, were invited to go check out the American Seed Trade Association veggie trials at the University of California, Davis. And she shared a great post about this in the group with some wonderful images. And I'm so excited to hear about their experience. I've invited them to come on the show and tell us all about it because this was a pretty exciting opportunity for these gals. So I'm looking forward to learning more about it. These bloggers learned a ton about gene editing, breeding plants for virus resistance, and mechanical harvesting. 
As Angie wrote, in order to strengthen a plant, you have to find its weaknesses. Now, that's a pretty intriguing concept. Now, these bloggers were lucky enough to see the gathering methods of the ligus bug. The ligus bug is enemy number one to beans, cotton, strawberries, and alfalfa. In California alone, this bug can cause $30 million in damage to cotton plants each year. So that's a little sneak peek into some of the things these gals learned when they were on this trip. And I'm really looking forward to speaking with them all about it. Finally, listeners continue to write in about the Basil Mania episode that was featured back in 573. That was a show that I created all about basil and my love for basil. Listener Deb Brando Ackerman shared her version of Basil Mania and her basil harvest. That looked fantastic. She shared pictures of her pesto that she was freezing in these muffin tins for preservation. That was a great idea. Then listener Ann Barclow said that after listening to the Basil Mania episode, she caught the basil bug even worse than she had it. So she was drying lime and sweet basil, and she showed this image of all these basil leaves on her dehydrator. And she also started a lot of basil plants from cuttings in her sunroom. And then she planted them throughout her landscape with her perennials. And she said they're now large enough to harvest. So that's fantastic. A lot of folks learned to propagate basil with that episode. So that's great, Anne. I love that that worked out for you. And she also said if anyone has a dehydrator they love, she wanted to know about it. Hers is an old hand-me-down. Lori Eisenstadt shared that she uses an Excalibur 9 tray. It's an older model, but she said it still works great. Anne says her basil takes about an hour to dry on the dehydrator. The color is not as vibrant, but the flavor is stronger than fresh. Finally, in listener love, I want to give a shout out to Christopher Yoder, who is gardening in Oklahoma City. He joined the listener community and shared many beautiful pictures of his garden this past week. And then also a shout out to Sean Patrick Keene. Sean joined our group a few weeks ago, and it's his first year planting a large garden. He's hoping to have a great fall garden, and we're here to help. So if you have any questions, fire away. I think you'll find the listener community for the show is very helpful. I love it. It's great for me to interact with you and see posts sharing our passion for gardening and have a curiosity to learn more. So if you'd like to join the group, don't be shy. Come hang out with us. I'd love for you to join for free. The next time you're in Facebook, just type the Still Growing Podcast group into the search bar and request to join. I look forward to meeting you over in the group. Now, if you'd like to call the show, there is a phone number for the show. You can call 865-333-GROW or 865-333-4769. You can share your suggestions or garden questions or comments for the show. You can do all of that on that number. And I look forward to hearing your voice. All right, now it's time for the Garden News Roundup. This is a curated group of posts and articles that I've shared over the past week with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group, and it's made up of a dozen different segments, from updates on past guests to articles featuring fascinating folks in the world of horticulture that I'd love to chat with, and that's something I call the Dream Guest Segment. I also cover news and information on 
special topic areas like sustainability and science. And then the other segments are really designed to honor the commitment of the show to helping you and your garden grow. And they are the how-to DIY segment, the continuing ed segment, the plant spotlight, shopping, recipes, inspiration, and quotables. Now, what's nice about this for you is that you can stay somewhat abreast of the news in horticulture and gardening just by listening to this part of the show each week. And you can easily check out these curated articles and posts for yourself because I share all of it with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. So if you hear something and want to read the full article, there's no need to take notes or track down links, just head on over to the group and join. Well, in the guest update segment, there's a fun post from author Craig LeHoulier. I spoke with him a few weeks ago, and his episode will be coming out later in September. And it's so fun to see how authors' gardens are growing. And as I say in so many episodes when I speak with garden authors... They're just like us. So I always reference that People Magazine segment that says celebrities, they're just like us. They walk their dogs, they take showers, you know, whatever, something like that. Well, I say the same things about garden authors because inevitably when I speak with them, they'll say, oh, you know what? This didn't go so great in my garden this year. Or I learned this about my garden this year when something unexpected happened, whether it was a bad pest infestation or weather issues that wiped out a crop. So garden authors, they're just like us. And you can read all about Craig LeHoulier's post in his blog post that's called And There Goes the Summer Garden. Also in the guest update segment this week and very timely for today's show is something that was shared by past guest Megan Kane, the creative vegetable gardener. Megan was featured back in episode 557, and she shared a great post from her blog called How to Preserve Food Even If You Have No Time. And I love what Megan wrote here. She said, what if I told you there were plenty of time-saving tricks for preserving your summer harvest that had nothing to do with long canning sessions in a hot kitchen, sweating your little gardener buns off? That's a clever introduction. Anyway, Megan introduces many ways to share the garden harvest, and it's a great supplement to today's show with Barbara Pleasant. So check that out. In sustainability this week, listener Michael Lockstamfor drew my attention to a website called iNaturalist.org. iNaturalist.org is a social network for naturalists. You can record your observations of plants and animals and share them with your friends and researchers and learn about the natural world. Michael said that he's been using the app for a few months and it's been a big help with identifying different caterpillars, spiders, and bugs he's spotted around the garden. Michael says the app is a place where you can post pictures and other folks can help you identify plants and pests. He really enjoys it and it might be helpful for you too. So check it out, inaturalist.org. In the continuing ed segment, My Chicago Botanic shared a great pest alert called Know Your Galls. And this is all about those interesting, odd-shaped galls that can appear on plants. And here's what it says. A gall 
tumor, or burl is an abnormal growth on the leaves, stems, roots, buds, twigs, or crown of a plant. In most cases, the gall is unsightly but not damaging. In small plants, the vascular flow of water and food can be restricted, causing poor growth or making the plant more susceptible to other stresses. Nematodes, mites, and insects cause 95% of galls. Bacteria and fungi cause the remaining 5%. In most cases, the gall-making organism can be identified by observing the structure of the gall and species of the host plant. This is a great article about galls with a great title, Know Your Galls. Also making the continuing ed segment this week is a post by the Redneck Rosarian, and it features great ideas for companion planting with roses. Some of the suggestions include daylily, asters, yarrow, and bee balm, just to name a few. In the how-to DIY segment, Botanical Interests shared how to make hollyhock dolls. This is a sweet little post. And past guest Karen Rexrode of the episode featuring plant explorers shared that this was one of the things she used to cover in her grandmother's garden catalog. So when she was researching this whole topic of a grandmother's garden, she discovered that people used to play with their flowers, like Cleome petals for fingernails, or the bleeding heart turned upside down and opened, revealing the lady in the bathtub. So if you're interested in trying one of these nostalgic DIYs, Try making hollyhock dolls. There was also a great how-to DIY post out of the blog, The Middle-Sized Garden in Britain. It's simply called How to Style Your Garden with Smart Tips and Finishing Touches. This is by Alexandra Campbell, and she points out that styling your garden doesn't exactly mean the same thing as designing your garden. Designing a garden is about choosing a theme, then planning the hard landscaping and planting. But styling a garden is about making sure it all works together and adding the finishing touches. And I really loved her tips here. Alexandra says, to style your garden can also mean rearranging a couple of pots and adding a cushion to make your garden look as if someone cool has just drifted through sipping champagne or homemade elderflower cordial. And Alexandra worked with Telegraph writer Francine Raymond, a talented stylist, and together they worked through some tips, which included picking a color theme, relating garden accessories to your house and incorporating good elements like lighting. In the plant spotlight this week is magnolia. And this post was shared because listener Patricia Chandler Newport asked, what do you guys think is going on with my magnolia? Now, this was a magnolia that had spots on it and then the leaves would turn brown. And I found a great post from thespruce.com and it was called, Why Did My Magnolia Foliage Get Black Spots and Then Brown Leaves Fell Off? It turns out leaf spot is a fungus and it thrives in moist conditions. And in terms of prevention, 
Healthy magnolia trees resist leaf spot. So the idea here is that you want to enhance air circulation. Prune branches on the magnolia tree that are rubbing against each other and prune branches of any surrounding trees or shrubs that might be invading the magnolia's space. And then, of course, don't overwater. In the news segment this week, Patricia shared an article that showed that the USDA hardiness zones have changed, and this was featured in Rodale'sOrganicLife.com. Now, this didn't affect every gardener across the United States, but it does affect some. So check out this article to see if your hardiness zone has officially changed. Also in the news this week, I shared images and a video of an incredible hummingbird rescue by Steve Hill out of Lilburn, Georgia. He went outside and saw a hummingbird that was trapped in a spider's web. So he gently took the hummingbird inside and used just a simple stream of water to free the bird from the spider's web. And then when he was all done, the hummingbird and other hummingbirds continued to kind of flock around him, showing their gratitude. And then Karen Rexrode chimed in and said that water is the cure for so many butterfly and bird emergencies, especially when they involve spider webs. That's good to know. Then garden writer Peggy Riccio shared a great post in her blog called Peg Plant about a curious exhibit at the Atlanta Botanical Garden. It's called The Curious Garden Exhibit. It was designed by Adam Schwerner. And these are installations that incorporate lots of art into the garden. Peg did a great job of taking pictures of this installation. There are brightly covered trees and a river of red painted gourds. That's super cool. So if you're near the Atlanta Botanical Garden, go check out The Curious Garden Exhibit. Finally, in the news, it was the 20th anniversary of the death of Princess Diana, and Hort Meg shared an article about the Diana Remembered Hosta, which is a standout selection. It's got thick, broad, substantial green leaves that are edged in a silvery white. So if you'd like to get this hosta, it's called the Diana Remembered Hosta. The flowers for this hosta are white, and they're exceptionally large compared to many other hostas. In the dream guest segment this week is Door County metal artist Robert Anderson. And this all came about because my childhood friend, Laura Leopold, shared a great video of a garden kaleidoscope this past week. So it's a kaleidoscope that's positioned over a planter, and then you spin the planter around and look through the kaleidoscope, and you see all of these beautiful images, of course, thanks to the gorgeous flowers that are twirling about beneath the kaleidoscope. When listener Barb O'Brien saw this post, she mentioned that there were several of these kaleidoscopes at the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum. So I checked it out, and sure enough, there are. The exhibit features 15 interactive garden kaleidoscopes, and they were all made by artist Robert Anderson. And I'd love to chat with him about how he makes these garden kaleidoscopes, and that's why he's in the Dream Guest segment this week. So just to give you a taste of what this installation involves at the Landscape Arboretum, let me read you this. 
The kaleidoscopes of varying heights allow everyone from children to adults to be able to enjoy them. Intricate prism designs create interactive living sculptures. They're encased in a bold, ingeniously designed sculptural metal frame and attached to container gardens planted by the Arboretum staff. The kaleidoscope feature is activated by slowly turning the large, bowl-shaped containers and thus creating dramatic, ever-changing flourishes of colors and shapes. Robert Anderson's artwork, which also includes freestanding steel sculptures, have been seen at botanic gardens, public parks, and private residences around the United States, as well as Canada and Japan. So now I'm headed down to the Arboretum sometime in September because I want to catch this. I want to get a chance to see these garden kaleidoscopes. And they're installed at the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum through September 25th of this year. In Science This Week is a great article that was featured in Science Daily that talks about how plants under heat stress have to act surprisingly quick to survive. And one of the ways they do this, it turns out, is by producing new proteins. So they do this in response to the stress. But if they don't produce those proteins fast enough, that's it. Their time is up and they'll wither and die. Very interesting. In shopping this week, I'm looking forward to reading this book. It's called Montana's Pioneer Botanist, and it's available in a number of places, but I just bought mine on Amazon. It's about 30 bucks, and again, it's called Montana's Pioneer Botanist, Exploring the Mountains and Prairies, and it's edited by Rachel Potter and Peter Lessica. These two have worked together to create a magnificent compendium of 31 historical essays written by 18 authors, many with a special connection to or knowledge of the botanist about whom they were writing. Photos of botanists and plants associated with them are interspersed within the essays. And here's what Chris Peterson of Hungry Horse News said about this book. Editors Rachel Potter and Peter Lessica have crafted not a dry biographical tome, but a bright and lively read full of colorful photos, illustrations, and interesting stories about the early efforts to catalog, identify, and study Montana's rich plant life and history. So Montana's Pioneer Botanist that made the shopping segment this week. An inspiration, there was a great post featuring these wonderful images that created insects out of flowers. That was super cool. There was also an interview with wildlife photographer Stephen Dalton. He shared images exclusively from his English garden. And these images are unforgettable. They're fantastic. Then finally, Atlas Obscura shared this great post called The Search for the World's Most Enchanting Greenhouses. This was written by Sarah Laskow, and the subtitle is Two Plant-Obsessed Photographers Are on a Mission. Great images of greenhouses here. And it led me to create a poll in our Facebook group about greenhouses, and it only had two options, have a greenhouse 
or want a greenhouse. Is there any other option? In recipes, there was a great weekend recipe shared on BackyardPatch.com, and it was for zucchini boats. So if you're looking for a good zucchini recipe, this one is awesome. Great with the kids, too. In the quotables segment this week, all of the quotes have something to do with autumn. Autumn, of course, is upon us now that Labor Day is behind us and the kids are back in school. And these are some of my favorite autumn quotes. This first one is by Albert Camus. Autumn is a second spring where every leaf is a flower. Here's one by John Donne. No spring nor summer's beauty hath such grace as I have seen in one autumnal face. Here's this short one by William Cullen Bryant. Autumn, the year's last loveliest smile. Here's a cute verse by Helen Hunt Jackson. By all these lovely tokens, September days are here with summer's best of weather and autumn's best of cheer. Then finally, here's John Updike's September. The breezes taste of apple peel. The air is full of smells to feel. Ripe fruit, old footballs, burning brush, new books, erasers, chalk and such. The bee, his hive, well-honeyed hum, and mother cuts chrysanthemums. Like plates washed clean with suds, the days are polished with a morning haze. Well, that's the Garden News Roundup for this week's show. Just a reminder, you can get all of these posts with links and bonus content in your Facebook feed if you join the listener community for the show, the free Facebook group. Just search for the Still Growing Podcast group the next time you're in Facebook and request to join. I'd love to meet you in the group. With that, Let's transition to the topic of today's show, Homegrown Pantry with Barbara Pleasant. How many potatoes should I plant for a family of four? Which fruits should I freeze and which should I dry? What varieties of tomatoes make the best salsa? These are just a few of the questions Barbara answers in her new book, Homegrown Pantry, a gardener's guide to selecting the best varieties and planting the perfect amounts for what you want to eat year round. And Barbara shares the answers to these questions questions, and more on today's show. By the time we hit September, most gardeners are laser-focused on a few main topics. How can we enjoy our harvest year-round? Did we plant too much or too little of a particular crop? And what should we do differently next year? These concerns are all addressed expertly and very simply in Barbara's book. Homegrown Pantry picks up where beginning gardening books leave off. Barbara offers in-depth profiles of the 55 most popular crops, including beans, beets, squash, tomatoes, and much more to keep your pantry stocked throughout the year. I love that each vegetable profile highlights how much you should plant per person. 
then Barbara did something that I love. She recommended the stellar varieties we should focus on. It gives us a great place to start when we're picking seeds. Talk about learning from a pro. And finally, Barbara shares the very best ways to preserve each item from your harvest of veggies, fruits, and herbs. This book is so comprehensive and so on point in terms of helping gardeners get the information they need. And that kind of clarity only happens with mastery, with years of growing and learning in the garden. You have to grow it to know it. And after spending over 30 years gardening, Barbara's book not only helps us find greater success and fulfillment in our gardens, but also makes makes that endeavor count the whole year through with harvest-saving methods including canning, pickling, root cellaring, fermenting, and dehydrating. Barbara shares charts to guide both new and experienced gardeners, and she gives tips for how to calculate the timing of second plantings. Generally speaking, most gardeners would have to call through multiple books to find all of the information distilled into this very straightforward and practical guide covering the very best information on gardening, preservation, seasonal recipes, and food storage. This is one of my favorite garden reference books now, and Barbara is a gem of gardening wisdom. A Virginia gardener, Barbara's been covering organic gardening and self-sufficient living for more than 30 years. Enjoy learning from Barbara as we chat about her book, Homegrown Pantry, a gardener's guide to selecting the best varieties and planting the perfect amounts for what you want to eat year round. Well, hi there, Barbara. I am delighted to have you on the show talking about your book, Homegrown Pantry, a gardener's guide to selecting the best varieties and planting the perfect amounts for what you want to eat year round. And as many gardeners are discovering right this very moment in September, this is a big challenge because the entire process from selecting varieties to the processing and storing of the harvest is really quite an endeavor. It is an endeavor, but the reward is so great. If you get to eat from your garden during the off-season, it's quite a reward for doing the work. You know, when I first wrote this book, Jennifer, I was uh, I held back a little because I said I didn't want to lead people down the primrose path, that this was easy. You know, because everything these days is supposed to be fast and easy. Yeah. And it's not. It, you have to think about it, and it requires attention, you know, day after day during the growing season. And then there's the kitchen part of it. So it's actually kind of complicated. Well, I thought, you know, people might not want to do this amount of work, but they do. And then I later realized I was thinking of it wrong, um, because what better reason to keep a vegetable garden? than to grow really superior food that you can have fun preserving. So it's it's much more positive than I used to think. Well, and there's some quote, right, that talks about if um, that, you know, something worth doing, you know, that it does take time and effort and that you get more satisfaction out of that. So if it was quick and easy, it probably wouldn't be as satisfying. 
and it wouldn't be as healthy. I usually work in the garden in the summer when it gets hot during the day for about an hour, hour and a half in the morning. So I don't have to have a gym membership and don't (laughs) have to go jogging or anything. But it engages my mind and engages my body. And um, it's a very satisfying thing to me. Well, I can relate to that. And, you know, your book starts out, this is a great segue, your book starts out with this little post that's called The Drive to Provide. And you give a little glimpse into your family history, especially your mom, who was a homegrown pantry kind of gal. Can you read that section for us? And then let's chat about it on the other side, because I can tell she was very inspirational to you. Yes, my city mother, um, uh, before I read, my city mother was from Chicago and my country father was from Mississippi. So (laughs) it was quite a match. So here's my story. My city mother fell in love with and married my country father, who grew a vegetable garden every summer because he liked it and thought that's the way life should be. With four kids to feed, Mom liked the money she saved with all the produce that came from the garden. But she didn't like the extra work involved in canning, at least most of the time. When the wild huckleberries in the woods ripened in early summer, she patiently picked the tiny berries and used them in muffins and pancakes. But she also made precious jars of huckleberry jam. As her first assistant, I saw the time and care she took with that jam, and I knew it was not about saving money. She had devoted herself to those huckleberries by choice, and seeing that they were put to good use became a source of personal pride. I should mention that my mother was Swedish, and that nothing wasted was one of the mantras of my childhood. But this does not explain the compulsion to pick and preserve berries, which may be hardwired into our hunter-gatherer brains. As poetically stated by Wendell Berry, better than any argument is to rise at dawn and pick duet red berries in a cup. In terms of things you can do to have a better life, picking berries simply works. Growing and preserving at least some of your own food will also make you feel more secure in a wild and ever-changing world. News of war, sickness, and economic collapse loses some of its punch when you are sitting in the shade with a basket of snap beans in your lap or lingering in the kitchen to hear the last canning lid pop. (laughs) Thank you for that. Let's chat a little bit about this upbringing that you had and then tell us a little bit about your life today. Well, I grew up on the Gulf Coast, um, and so it was a difficult climate, um, but my dad had been from the Gulf Coast, from Mississippi, so he knew what to do. And I've gradually uh, gravitated more northward, and I now live in the mountains of southwest Virginia, just outside a little tiny town called Floyd. But Floyd is on the map. We are repeatedly named as one of the coolest small towns in the southeast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a handmade music place and uh, um, lots of organic food and handmade arts and crafts. And It's a very nice place to live. I love the four-season climate. Well, as a Minnesota yeah. girl, I can relate to that because I enjoy the right. four seasons as well. Right. See, when you grow up in Mobile, Alabama, there are not four seasons. There are two. 
(laughs) (laughs) Summer and not quite summer. Um, (laughs) No, actually, the winters and and, and the springs are very fun, but you get very little fall, and the summers are, you know, you have to stay in the water all the time. It's so hot. Yeah, it's so hot. Well, I chuckled a little bit when you were reading the section about your mom where you said nothing wasted was one of the mantras because I married my high school sweetheart. And so we we know each other's families very well. And my husband had an Aunt Lena who uh, took care of him while his parents were working. She often helped out with, with the kids. And about once a week, she'd make a hot dish called must go. And that meant everything must go. (laughs) If it was in the fridge, it had to go. So his dad was a sheriff and he'd come home for lunch and have lunch with the kids and Aunt Lena. And uh, Philip always tells the story. They were having must must go hot dish. And of course, it was all put together with like a can of cream of mushroom soup or something like this. (laughs) And his his dad uh, put a, a spoon or something into the middle of this hot dish and pulled out a piece of pizza. <laughs> so it was truly must go. Everything went in the hot dish. So uh, they did not waste food. That's for sure. Oh my goodness, that was not a problem. I had three brothers. There was never any food left over. <laughs> no, no leftovers. Well, your book is divided into five sections: why you grow food, basic preservation methods, and then the last three are what you call encyclopedias of rewarding crops for the pantry and you cover vegetables, fruits, and herbs and you share 55 popular varieties. So I love that. Let's use the structure of your book as our guide today for our conversation and we'll begin here in section one, why grow your own food. Now, one of the things I appreciated about this section is that you address the importance of choosing what to grow. This is on page five. And there are, yes. And there are some questions here that should really be asked to help gardeners focus their efforts. This is so important, isn't it? It is. And, you know, it it helps to focus your thinking because just like everybody else, gardeners get caught up in what's popular or or trendy, and that may not be the best thing for you in terms of your maximum enjoyment of the time that you spend with your garden. So, Of course, the first question is, this crop likely to do well in my climate? Is is it going to be easy to grow? And here's a tip. If you see it at your local farmer's market, chances are you can grow it. If you do not see it (laughs) at your local farmer's market, you should study further. The second one is, how much does my family like to eat it? There are some things that you can grow a lot of. Um, There's a beautiful green called mizuna uh, that's a relative of mustard, and I could grow enough to feed the county, but they wouldn't eat it. So (laughs) I only grow a few of those. (laughs) And then how much time and trouble is involved in storing the crop? Can you just keep it? chilled and or dry, you know, sweet potatoes, all you have to do is keep them dry and they will store eight months. So pumpkins are kind of the same way. So these really easy, easy, easy things as opposed to something that you would need to freeze, which is not that hard, but take space. Pickling is great fun. 
I, I think I also wanted to, in the course of the book, you know, open people to preservation options. So until you kind of know what your options are, it's hard to answer number three. Very true. Very true. Well, and I remember speaking with Deborah Madison about this when I talked to her because I mentioned to her from a gardener standpoint that I have friends that grow things just to try them. They never intend to eat them or preserve them. They're just growing it for sport. And when I shared this with her, she just like looked stricken. It was like, what do you mean grow for sport? Because that just would not occur to someone who's a chef, you know, like Deborah Madison is. But thinking with the end in mind is very important. Well, I think so. And then sometimes things might not work out exactly the way you planned. I had one planting of carrots this spring that they went kind of kinky and had some insect issues. And so I knew that I wasn't going to even keep them in the refrigerator drawer very long. So I made pickled carrots. They're the prettiest little things you ever mm. saw because they have red carrots in them. You know, a gardener can grow all kinds of things that you don't often see at the store. <laughs> yes, good point. Two other items that you discuss in this section are working your shoulder seasons and working with tunnels. And what do gardeners need to understand about these two concepts? Well, with the shoulder seasons, we're basically talking about spring and fall. I am eating salad out of my garden at least a couple of weeks before my last frost date. So the idea of waiting until, you know, frost rolls by, you've missed a third of the gardening season because so many things appreciate the cool weather. And then summer is for things that like high weather, tomatoes and peppers and corn and then you have another chance at cool weather crops in the fall. So the, the spring and fall shoulder seasons are really important for maximizing the productivity in the garden. Now, tunnels can help get the spring season off and help extend the fall season, but the biggest thing is they give you an easy way to manage pests. This is, I've written many gardening books, and this is the first gardening book that does not have a pest control section. Instead, once you get to know that there is a pest problem that's going to bother a certain crop, you use row cover or t- I use wedding net to, to cover things that I do not want insects or deer to eat. Oh, great And point. it works. Now, talk to us a little bit about the tubing or the way that you use tubing with your wedding net or whatever you're using, or do you even use tubing? Well, in the past, I've used tubing. You can use um, a half-inch diameter PVC pipe. You can use, and we're talking about some kind of support for tunnels because one thing that can be problematic when you cover crops with any kind of cloth or fabric is if that cloth or fabric is rubbing on the new growth on the tips, it can cause things not to work out so well. So it's best to have the cover held aloft. Right now, I'm using metal hoops that I think came in a box. <laughs> I'm not sure where these things came from. Um, but they, I like a, um, the picture in the book shows PVC pipe, but I rather like the, they're just a really heavy gauge wire because I can use clothespins to fasten whatever cover I'm using onto them. I had a piece of 
uh, shade cover on until a few days ago. And it was just attached in place with wood clothespins. I think you could go through my garden and find a hundred wood clothespins, <laughs> wooden clothespins, <laughs> holding things up. So, so I like the one. I've even used saplings cut from the woods before as hoops. Mm-hmm. So you just want to hold it off. You could just stake the whole your rope cover aloft. Hmm. Now, where do you source your wedding netting? Do you have a secret supplier for that? No. And where I live in Floyd, Virginia, we have a wonderful um, fabric store. It's called Schoolhouse Fabrics because it's in the original three-story schoolhouse in the town. And the bottom floor is, is formal wear. And I like to look at the remnants. And the widest thing I can get that's really open weave. I've tried something like organza. It did not work. (laughs) It retained too much heat. It didn't allow for free air movement. But um, so I'll often just shop the remnant section at the fabric store in the formal wear department looking for big wide pieces of something that looks like tulle, T-U-L-L-E or wedding net. Yeah, I like that. That's a great tip. Yeah, one of my neighbors does weddings. So she works oh. at the local winery and she does weddings. So she also has a and b and she was saying, what do I do? I have all these worms eating up my kale, you know, this and this and, you know, what do I do? And she wanted to know what to spray. And, I, you know, you could use BT, a BT pesticide. I told her she could spray that. I said, but you know what? You could just cover it with wedding net. Do you know what that is? And she said, do I know what that is? Do you know how many brides I've had to save with the wedding net in the trunk of my car? (laughs) (laughs) So then she had me down to look at it, and sure enough, she used wedding net and clothespins, and and her little greens garden was beautiful. Tools of the trade. Tools of the trade. I love it. I love it. Well, Section 2 covers basic preservation methods. First up, we have to talk about this beautiful picture as we start on this section on page 14. And I have to ask, is this your kitchen? You know, that is my kitchen. But listen, um, when, when, see, this book was going to be a two-color book and um, just with line drawings. And as it got closer and then the manuscript came in um uh the story people said hey we're going to go full color and we're going to shoot it at your house oh my and gosh. i went wait a minute <laughs> 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 you know the two things that happen is you go on a diet and you start painting <laughs> you start and painting. those cabinets were naughty pine oh you're kidding and even when you use a primer we're talking four coats of paint oh but anyway, it turned out great. See, what happened is I had the art director send me, okay, send me pictures of your ideal kitchen. Because I had in mind to find a kitchen and rent it. Oh. Um, you know, because there's B&Bs and, you know, all kinds of stuff around here. It's kind of a touristy place. And everything he sent me was like French country. And then I realized, you know what, I can do this. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> then you start Googling and Pinteresting things like Cape Cod Kitchen Renovation and wow. things like that. And so I painted and painted and painted. Oh, and the countertops, you know, my, my husband and another guy pulled them off, sanded them down, put them back the same day. It was great. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that is, I, I put out, I, my exclamation point says, beautiful Barbara. I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. 
we like it so much. And uh, it did turn out great to be able to have these photo shoots at your own house and your own garden and all that kind of stuff. So. And I learned so much from the photographer. I, I would say, I wish I could take a picture like that. And he said, well, you can. Here's how you do it. And showed me things I could do that I didn't know I could do. Wow. Well, and I have to say, I love the white paint on your cabinets. Yes. As, as you can see, the cabinets, I forget they're, uh, forget what you call this kind of framing that was done. So there's some relief pattern in the cabinet doors. And therefore, going with an all-white worked really well um, if they had been, you know, flat. They, they were custom-made at the time. It's just they were dark and... I don't know. Even when you use a primer and go over the knots in the knotty pine, we're talking four coats of paint. It did go on and on. And, oh, I had to sew an apron as well. (laughs) I couldn't find the one I wanted, so I made one. Talk about domestic tranquility here. Now, did you uh, <laughs> did you end up? Um, how how have you liked having your cabinets painted white? As as a gardener cook, is that a good combination to have, or are they too high maintenance for you? They, it turns out that they are not so high maintenance. If you know, when I notice you know splatters and dribbles, um, it's a I use the very high quality paint, and I've done one, you know, go through and do touch-ups when um, big family was coming to visit. (laughs) (laughs) For the most part, you know, just uh, keeping up with the wiping it has really done well. Um, The door um, out the kitchen to the deck, not so much. (laughs) It really needs to be a brown color because it it just loads up with fingerprints like nothing I've ever seen. (laughs) But the joys of white paint. Well, I, I, you know, you can see when somebody's dribbled coffee down the cabinets. Um, and, and like I say, I think using a good paint made a difference. Um, so, you know, I can't really, I, I like them. It's a cheerful kitchen and dining area now. And yeah. looks, it's small. And so the white makes it look a little bit, a little bit bigger too. And hmm. Well, I love it. It looks beautiful. Well, pages 16 and 17 are pretty important pages in your book. First, you provide an overview of the five basic storage methods, which obviously very important when you're writing a book called Homegrown Pantry. And I'm wondering if you can share that overview quickly so people understand the range of methods that you're discussing in your book. Oh, yes, because I think this has been a problem because when people think food preservation, they think canning, which is is a miraculous method of food preservation. I love to do it, but it's also the most time-consuming and the most technical. Way before that, you have what we call cold storage or dormant storage, like storage of potatoes, storage of sweet potatoes. I mean... Um, pumpkins and winter squash are basically storage devices for seeds that nature has figured out. And you <laughs> just provide, you know, a cool, dry room and they will keep. And so food preservation just doesn't get easier than that to, to be able to just store something. And that, that counts. Uh, we're going to include things that can be stored in the refrigerator as well. Um, uh, carrots and beets and your root crops need to be in 
pretty cool storage. Now, since we're talking September on, depending on your climate, once your basement cools down, you can do a lot in terms of just keeping things in a cool basement. So in addition to cool storage or dormant storage, there's freezing, which is very straightforward and fun. That's mm-hmm. what I'm doing a lot of that now. Um, drying, I dry more things than I can. I dry more tomatoes than I can. And mm-hmm. right now I have two cantaloupes in my food dehydrator. And then we get the canning, which the great thing about canning is once it's done, that food is good for a year or sometimes longer. And that's why I call it miraculous. But then number five is fermentation, and you talk about miraculous. I just have <laughs> so enjoyed fermenting uh, vegetables since I learned how to do it maybe four or five years ago. The book pushed me to try some new food preservation projects that I never would have imagined, like fermenting snap peas. And they are one of the most delicious fermented foods I've ever had. And every year now, I'm looking forward to, I'm going to get to ferment some snap peas. How do you do that? How do you ferment snap peas? Easy squeezy. <laughs> you take some snap peas in the, you know, in the shells. And in fact, the little cute little cap at the top of the pea, you yeah. can keep that. And then you'll have a little holder. And I put those down in a jar, and you fill the jar with a mixture of salt and water. That's two tablespoons of salt per quart of water. It's just easy, easy. And put that over them, and and sometimes I show pictures in the fermentation section of really easy ways to do this. And at normal room temperatures, it's going to take about four days, five days. So the sugars in the peas, which are abundant in peas, um, to convert. And so they're no longer sweet. Now we have a salty vegetable. And um, the fermentation process has changed the sugars, but they're still crisp. And so once the fermentation is done, which, like I say, only takes about five days, I drain that brine off and put the peas in a fresh jar with a fresh mixture of salt water, put it in the refrigerator, and it's ready to eat for two months. Unbelievable. And how do they taste? They're delicious because it's like eating little salty peas. Um, more similar to eating salted steamed edamame oh. than any other food experience. Now that's enticing. They're delicious. <laughs> uh, you also do a little deep dive on the methods individually. And I was very taken with your instructions on cold storage. You try to help gardeners understand dormant storage. How should we be thinking about this? Well, you know, so much depends on where you live and, you know, what is available in your house or, you know, it used to be that in the Northeast and in certain parts of the North, everybody had a basement. Everybody had a a storm cellar, you know, um, and these are great food food storage spaces because they mimic conditions underground. And for most vegetables, that's really the goal, is to mimic 45 to 50 degrees underground, you know, with a constant coolness. 
And um, you can do that in a basement or an unheated garage, providing humidity, which doesn't mean, you know, having a humid basement. It means packing, for example, beets or carrots in um, damp sand or um, damp sawdust. The advantage of damp sand is that you can reuse it over and over again um, after you've finished eating all the beets that you may have packed away in damp sand. When spring rolls around, you can just dry it out in the sun and, and it's ready to use again. So, hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that because that was something that I know you and I talked about in the pre-interview chat because I'd never seen this before. But what you've done here is you have a bucket that you've filled with sawdust and then it shows beets kind of nestled in there. Is that sawdust damp? Yeah, it's it's lightly damp because what I'm trying to do is fool the beets into thinking they're still not only in the ground, but living in some wonderful place <laughs> where there are never hard freezes or cold winds. And, and um, the dampness of the medium, you know, whether some people use compost or, you know, leaf mold, whatever they have, it's the dampness that keeps the um, roots, when we're talking about storing roots, from losing weight, from uh, transpiring, you know, moisture out. And... It's amazing how long they will hold, but then again, we didn't talk about this. I'm going to sideways into botany a little bit. Most of these root crops are true biennials, so they're built to go through winter. They're built for cold storage. You know, if you just provide them with good conditions, they'll go through winter. And in fact, many people involved in growing garden seeds and if they grow beets or if they grow carrots, to make sure that those carrots are safe through winter, they will hold them in a bucket in a cold place and then replant them in the spring and they'll start growing and making seeds. Oh, isn't that something? Oh, no, I didn't know that. Huh, I didn't know that either. There are all kinds of, there's another cool way. Can I talk about that cabbage thing? We Yes. <laughs> If cold weather is coming and, and your refrigerator is full of cabbages, it's amazing what you can do with both cabbage and Brussels sprouts by pulling the plants up out of the ground with the roots attached and then just sticking the roots in a bucket or a pail and then move that to your basement or an unheated garage where it won't freeze hard but it'll stay cool. The cabbage doesn't even know it's been pulled from the garden and will hold for like six weeks. That's crazy. So walk people through this because this is going to be revolutionary to some people who have never heard of this method. So yeah, you would just take a, a bucket or pail because you are going to be putting some water in it from time to time and it could leak dribble. Okay. <laughs> and um, pull up Brussels sprouts, which is a big upright plant or um, cabbage, which by this time is kind of um, often has a stem on it and Pull off all the big old leaves because the plant doesn't need those anymore. So you just have like a cabbage on a stick with roots at the bottom. And you can put two or three of those in a, in a roomy pail and just keep them in a cool place. And the, the cabbages will stay crisp and good until you're ready to deal with them. And again, this is your plant biology at play here. The, the cabbage is thinking it's back in the ground, that it's back in business. 
Right. I'm holding through winter. I'm holding through winter. If I can make it till spring, I can bloom. <laughs> <laughs> what a dirty trick we're playing on that cabbage. I love it, though. That's fantastic. One of my favorite photos in your book is on page 22. And it's where you're freezing these adorable little muffin cups with fresh corn. And you end up with these. Mm, I yeah, love corn. That's just so great. That is such a great idea. Is that how you prefer to store corn? Well, now over the weekend, we put up our the first planting of corn. So there's a second planting of corn. And that will probably go into the silicone muffin tins is what I use. Back before they made silicone muffin tins, I think I tried using regular muffin tins. And the problem is, you know, getting the foods back out again. Um, I will freeze a lot of things in the silicone muffin tins, um, pesto made from basil and um, anything that, you know, I want a goodly amount. One of the things I found over the years is, see, I don't have room in my freezer for big ears of corn, so I have to cut off the kernels and freeze them in bags, you know, and and... Several years ago, I did an article for Mother Earth News Magazine, and we used Facebook, their Facebook group and asked them, how do you really freeze your corn? And, and got all kinds of things, ideas, and some of them weren't so good. But the great idea was to cut all the corn off of the cob and put it in your biggest baking pan with a little salt. And she said, I threw in a stick of butter. <laughs> And cover it and then bake it until it's all bubbly and hot. And that way you've achieved the food preservationist goal of fixing the enzymes that cause foods to turn to cardboard in the, in the freezer. And we did 30 years of corn and it all fit in this big baking thing. And I um, freeze them in plastic bags thin and flat so that if I don't want the whole bag of corn, I could just crack it on the countertop and take out part. And then I thought, that is just not sophisticated. I should start using the muffin tin. (laughs) (laughs) And sure enough, you know, you freeze them in the muffin tin and the photo shows them being taken out and then I'll put them in a freezer bag. And that way... We, I make different casseroles and things like that, or maybe you're making a vegetable soup where you only want a small amount of corn. And that's what I'll use those for. Or if I'm making cornbread, thaw out one, we call them puck. Huh. <laughs> thaw out one puck of corn. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's great. And I also loved your image of what I'm going to call corn brittle when you were storing it flat because it's like a peanut brittle the way you were discussing, you know, breaking off a hunk when you needed it for cooking. But I love the the image. I mean, they're just so adorable when they come out of that silicone muffin tin. Well, they're handy. And and the, one of the things I'll have to say about this whole deal with homegrown pantry and growing some of your own food and putting by some of your own food, it is so convenient to have it there. You know, I, I still go to the supermarket at least two or three times a week. <laughs> Dog food, I can't grow that. And... um But in between, there's so many times whatever I need or want is here. You know, I've already... I have it. I have all these vegetables and never run out of wine. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Priorities, priorities. This is fantastic. Well, we have apple trees 
And it sounds very idyllic until you are the owner of three bearing apple trees. Because you want to share the the best apples, and that means you're the one that's putting up the call apples. And you're, they're, apple trees are taskmasters. Yeah. Have, have you read Michael Pollan's The Botany of Desire? Oh, it's been a long time, but yes. I know. Well, he he posit, took out this idea. You know, we we take it for granted that plants work for us. They do what we tell them to. Mm-hmm. If we say you grow here, we've you know been very magnanimous, haven't we? We've mm-hmm. <laughs> been all powerful and given them a chance to grow. Well, he says, what if it's the other way around? What if apples? with their sugars, with their sweetness, with their ability to produce Applejack and give American colonists a source of alcohol, what if they're getting us to do their bidding and and they're the ones in charge? (laughs) (laughs) I often think about that in September when I'm putting up both apples and pears at the same time. Well, I'm thinking about that right now as I'm thinking about my garden because I haven't been in it in two weeks and who's in charge of who here? (laughs) The garden keeps marching on, so well, and and most in your vegetables and in your flower gardens, you know, it's the marsh to produce seeds. I must make seeds. I must make seeds. <laughs> the drive to survive, absolutely. Yes. Section three is on vegetables for the homegrown pantry, and I really loved this section, and I particularly enjoyed your introduction to this section on page 51. Can you read the first two paragraphs, because they tee up the section so nicely, and then let's chat about the approach here. Okay, this is vegetables for the homegrown pantry. Every crop you plant requires an ongoing investment of time and energy, so it pays to be choosy. You want to grow plenty of the crops your family especially likes, but consider your garden's abilities as well. Crops that are easy to grow organically are usually a good fit to the site and soil. If a nearby organic farmer does well with a certain crop, you probably can too. When the crop hits the kitchen, it gets judged under new rules. How difficult is it to store pie pumpkin that will sit patiently on your porch for a month suddenly sounds great, and it's hard to beat the fulfillment brought by a nice basket of cured potatoes resting in the basement. But now you see, Jennifer, I've already started trying to talk people into the easy preservation. (laughs) (laughs) It's been amazing to me to... um, I get to visit other gardens around the country and see what grows well in different areas and what different gardeners have as their preservation challenges. I was in Oregon um, a few years ago, and there we drove by something I'd never seen before, a big field of cauliflower, Mm. perfect, beautiful cauliflower. (laughs) Where I live, it's a big challenge to grow cauliflower. So, you know, it it gives you an insight on, oh, what are other people having to do and what are their challenges, you know. I've never been challenged with having to preserve cauliflower. (laughs) Well, we, we get spared a few things. Other things we get to excel at and then some we're spared. Right. But see, I love rutabagas, personally. It's one of my favorite vegetables. And here where I live, there's only one window. You know, you have to plant them in the middle of summer and, and then harvest them in the fall. And But then where you are, you know, you can grow these gorgeous rutabagas. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. And their rutabagas is a great, cool storage crop. My alternative, since I can grow rutabagas, like I say, but if I miss my chance, it's only one chance every year. I get two chances with kohlrabi, which does really well for me in both spring and fall. So, One of the other things I thought would be good is just for you to talk about, I loved the organization of your book. Um, oh, thank you. I really. It was an uh, evolving thing. <laughs> we yeah. weren't sure how to do some of the stuff. Well, I, I, I just thought, you know, you've got these fields. How much stellar varieties and best ways to preserve? And I'm like, mm-hmm. huh, I've never seen those three together anywhere. Not like that anyway. And I love the word stellar for varieties. I really like that. <laughs> That was fantastic. You know, for people to be thinking about that, oh, gosh, never thought about preserving, you know, only thinking about picking varieties and definitely not thinking about how much, just going crazy, you know. So this is great. And people do. And, and you know, that is part of the, the baggage with this whole field of endeavor um, is people have been exposed to some feast or famine deal where, where you're chained to the kitchen preserving 80 quarts of tomatoes or something <laughs> ridiculous and, and the end of the season comes and all you have is tomatoes yes. it's one of my pet peeves yeah <laughs> yeah well and and this is you know and then people say why'd you stop gardening right that's the question well here's my here's i you know i'm just turned 64 and some of my friends are saying i've entered my farmer's market phase i'm not going to do food gardening anymore which is you know that's fine that's their choice but i think maybe in the past they had taken on too much but my counter argument is it's not about what's on your plate when you're gardening for health and well-being because by the time i serve a salad that i grew myself i have done 80 neat bins planting and weeding and watering and tending and, you know, praying over it. (laughs) (laughs) So there's this whole level of physical involvement that if I didn't have a garden, I don't think I would be healthy and happy. I don't, you know, because the health benefits are are the process as much as the end, I guess, is what I'm saying. I love that. Yeah. Well, readers will greatly benefit from how you review these vegetables. And I'm very curious, what were your takeaways after you organized vegetables in this manner by looking at how much to plant, stellar varieties, and the best ways to preserve? How did looking at each of these through that lens maybe change you a little bit in your perspective on them? Well, I think the biggest thing was discovering how many different ways there are to preserve things. For example, cabbage, you think of, okay, I can keep it in the refrigerator for a while, or I could learn to make sauerkraut, which sounds kind of spooky. You can also freeze it. You can include it in pickles, and I never would have imagined dried cabbage. No. But it's actually a really handy thing to have. It holds its color well, and it rehydrates just like cabbage. So if you're making, I make winter soups, and in fact, Sunday night is soup night around here. And the the, the little dehydrated vegetables that go in there are countless, and, and cabbage is actually one of them. But, and another thing, I'm still talking cabbage. 
I'll take the outer leaves and clean those up, not and um, blanch them in boiling water, and then lay them flat and freeze them flat, and then in the winter time use those to make cabbage oil. Oh. So you learn all kinds of things. Now, the how much to grow thing depends on where you live. You know, how big is a head of cabbage where you live? It, it varies. You know, in Alaska, you can grow these ginormous heads of cabbage. But, um, uh, and then tomatoes, you know, how productive is a tomato plant? Well, where you are, a tomato plant's not nearly as productive as it is where I am. So, yeah. you know, it can vary greatly. It, it absolutely can. Well, 2018 is going to be the year of the beet, according to the National Garden Bureau. So I thought it would be fun if we got ahead of this a little bit and had you talk about beets for a minute. As the English call them, beetroot. Beetroot. <laughs> beetroot. <laughs> I love, I did, you know, it, once upon, I've been gardening a long time and, and all beets used to be red. Red and beets went together. And now you can grow orange beets and um, yellow beets and uh, chioga beets that are white and, and ringed red. And um, so beets have gotten very much to be designer vegetables. But nutritionally, beets are just a powerhouse. So I also, I love these um, cylindrical beets. One of the variety names is Cylindra, and I think there are a couple of other variety names, and they're they're almost carrot-shaped. And when I cook the, you always cook beets before you can them. And after they're cooked, you can just give them a little squeeze, and the beet pops out, leaving the skin behind. It's very weird. (laughs) But the good thing about the cylindrical beets is when you slice them, every slice is uniform. It just looks like the one next to it. And um, so it, it puts up a really nice preserve. You can So it's really pretty to have something pretty and canned. I will say that the beet juice gets so dark that you can't see how pretty the beets are in, in the jar until you get them out on the plate. Oh, <laughs> I did not realize that. You know, beets are one of those crops that is a newcomer to the top ten. Beets beets were a minor vegetable until they went to different colors, and the farmer's market movement has been great for beets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so beets have gotten better and more colorful and, and also easier to grow, I think. And it it doesn't hurt that goat cheese has also gotten more popular because beets Correct. and goat cheese, yeah. you know, they go together and they've helped each other. Well, see, I've been gardening so long. When I first started gardening, it was kind of boring. The crop lineup was very plain. You know, you, you grew green snap beans and not purple ones and not wax beans either. You just, you know, it was kind of dull. I remember when I first grew arugula, though, nobody grew arugula. Nobody knew what it was. And I complained to um, Ross Creasy, the grand priestess of edible landscaping, (laughs) that my arugula tasted like burned tires. And she said, oh, Barbara, you're not supposed to eat it in the summertime. (laughs) 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 And now I grow arugula twice a year and really enjoy it, really like it a lot. But I wasn't doing it right. And it was new. There was so much that was new. Well, and I love what you wrote about yellow beets as well. Chat about that a little bit, will you? 
Well, now, historically, um, I think, I, I don't have it off the top of my head what year, I think at Berkey started a yellow beet um, in the market back in the 30s or 40s, something like that. And it was just a curiosity, just a novelty, and always had some germination issues. Um, beets are kind of funny seeds anyway. So um, it has taken this long, I think, for those germination issues to be worked out through traditional plant breeding. And so a gardener now can grow um, yellow beets, golden beets, um, with more confidence that the seeds are going to germinate and grow. But at the same time, a lot of people hooked on beet greens. You know, the young and tender beet greens are really good to eat. So, As kind of like a, a micro? No, it's like an alternative to turnip greens. or um, They resemble probably Swiss chard more closely oh, okay. than anything else. Uh, and some people just think they're the best green ever. Really? And it's true. They're they're good. They're sweet. They're mild. Hmm. So. Hmm. Well, uh, similar to the photo of beets stored in sawdust that you shared early in your book, you show a photo of carrots. They're very neatly trimmed. I was like, oh my gosh, this woman's carrots are amazing. And you store those in sawdust as well. So, share. Well, I'm kind of a carrot fool, and when you run out of <laughs> uh, refrigerator space, they have to go somewhere. Um, I grow carrots twice a year. Um, my growing season's long enough that the um, day before yesterday, I was out thinning baby carrots. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, once that fall crop uh, does not come in until October, and it's usually cool enough for me to use buckets of sand or sawdust to store the carrots until um get them in, in the refrigerator. Part of the problem, I have a critter in my area called a vole, V-O-L-E. Oh, sure. And they're like vegetarian moles. They want roots and... um I guess the colder it gets, it's a hungry world out there, and anything I leave out in the garden is going to get eaten. Any roots are going to get eaten by vault. So the option of leaving the roots in the garden through the winter is, is not an option for me. Okay. That option is just feeding vault. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I have to dig them up and have to uh, store them somewhere. So when you're storing these carrots in this way, by digging them up and then basically burying them mostly up to their necks in sawdust. I read... With the tops removed, we'll have to, you know, point out to people that don't have the visual helpers that we have. As soon as carrots are harvested, you should remove the tops because the tops draw moisture from the roots. And so all methods of storage, the the tops have been cut off. Yes. And you pack them in this damp, weathered sawdust and you mm-hmm. wrote on here that they will store for weeks at cool temperatures around 40 degrees Fahrenheit like this. Yes. And, and for many people, you know, once fall sets in, um, and, and again, you want a place that does not freeze hard and that is defined as 26 degrees Fahrenheit for six hours or more. So basically, a place is going to stay above 30 degrees. Okay. And, um, 
which is a refrigerator temperature. But most people's cool storage is more the in the 45 to 55 degree range. A base, an unheated basement or garage is going to be in more like the 40 to 55, which is great. Hmm. Well, two questions that you ask on the back of your book pertain to this section on vegetables as well. And I thought, you know what, I'll bite. I'm going to ask you these questions. The first one was, how many potatoes should I plant for a family of four? Which again, speaks to being a little more mindful around what you want to get out of growing potatoes. And then also, what varieties of tomatoes make the best salsa? Well, I'm going to take the first, the second question first because it's easier to answer, which is how, what type of tomatoes to grow for salsa. Any type that's a paste or processing tomato is what you want to grow for salsa. If you are using, if you're growing all big heirlooms, which are wonderful tomatoes, especially for fresh eating, but they're very, very juicy. And once you go to processed tomatoes, the first thing you do is, you know, subject them to heat and they let go of that juice and you end up with watery sauce or watery tomatoes. And if you can them, it separates. And so you have, you know, a jar that looks like it's two-thirds tomato and one-third water. It's, it's not water, it's juice. It tastes great, but it's not what we're used to. <laughs> okay. Used to seeing a paste variety is going to have very little juice compared to big juicy tomatoes and so they're they're just better for canning you have less waste and there are some wonderful canning varieties now how many potatoes to grow now the first thing uh, um, to consider is that potatoes including organically grown potatoes have gotten freely available and they're not very expensive so do you want to grow all of your potatoes, you know, or do you want to grow a selection of interesting, delicious potatoes for your family? Good point. So I would rephrase the question from its self-sufficiency viewpoint. You know, like, I don't want to encourage people to grow all the potatoes they need for a year unless that's really what they want to do. If they grew all the potatoes you needed for a family of four, where are you going to grow the other things you want to grow? You know? So instead, <laughs> I would reach some happy medium. I'll, I'll tell a story. I have a friend, and he, he, you know, was lonely for a long time and, and finally found a lady. And... um they got excited and planted 40 tomato plants oh with gosh. which to make salsa. The relationship did not last. And I, <laughs> 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 I think the 40 tomato plants were a part of it. Um, now, I love homegrown potatoes and grow a selection of them every year. I love to go to the feed store where they have 20 different kinds and get a few of these purple ones and a few of these yellow ones and and um, some fingerlings, French fingerlings. Oh, they're my favorite. So I'm not going to give up any of that, but I'm totally not on board with trying to grow all of my own potatoes. I, <laughs> I, would, I don't, wouldn't want to do it. It wouldn't be fun. So I guess I probably grow 30 or 40 pounds of potatoes a year, which is, seems like a lot, but it's really not. 
And to your point, it's important to save your marriage, right? We don't garden to the point where we no longer have relationships with people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I guess I'm growing all these, you know, kind of snooty potatoes too. You know, I'm growing varieties you don't see in the stores. And um, there are some phenomenal potatoes out there. These ones bred at Cornell in New York, um, Adirondack Red. And Adirondack blue. I've never seen such productive potatoes in my whole life. Really? Adirondack blue? What do those look like? Well, they're a blue potato all the way through. And in fact, um, the company that makes the Terra chip company buys them to make Terra blue potato chips, which are the official snack of JetBlue. Oh. Airline, which also grows Adirondack blue potatoes at their um, terminal, at, I believe, is at Kennedy huh. in New York. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's unusual for a potato variety to have an interesting story, but that one does. <laughs> that does. So snooty, snooty potatoes, the Adirondack varieties. I love that. Any other snooty ones you want to share with us? Well, I, I, the French fingerlings are a late potato, and they're not a curved fingerling. They're an oblong um, potato with yellow flesh and, and some little hints and streaks of, of red in there. And I just like cooking with them. They make me happy as a cook. And um, different potatoes do that. You know, it just like we were talking with beets, it's not been that long ago that there weren't these choices of all these interesting potatoes to grow. Um, the varieties I just named, Adirondack Red and Adirondack Blue, came about because uh, a vegetable farm in New York State told the vegetable breeders at Cornell, if you could get me some really colorful potatoes that were productive and disease-resistant, I could sell the heck out of them. And you know what? They did. They bred Adirondack Red, Adirondack Blue, and then another one uh, that has yellow flesh. I can't remember the name of it. And, you know, they're just easy to grow and way productive, and and that's how they got started. I remember when just getting some banana fingerlings was considered very exotic. Hmm. Things have changed. Yeah, they certainly have. I actually love being a little fly on the wall and seeing how people handle their produce. So I particularly enjoyed the picture of your laundry baskets lined with newspaper and then filled with your potatoes on page 166. And then on the okay. other side, that was great. And then on the other side, you share seven ways to store potatoes. I didn't realize there were that many ways. So I'm wondering if you can share that with us. Let's chat about these methods. Walk walk us through those. Well, it depends on your, you know, your climate and what the situation is. I have um long gardened and warm climates where the first crop of early potatoes um matures and it's hot. And you bringing them into the air-conditioned indoors is about as good as you can do. You never want to put potatoes in the refrigerator because it has a sweetening effect on them, which makes them difficult to cook with. But more importantly, when so-called sweetened potatoes, which are potatoes that have been chilled, are cooked at high temperatures, it develops a carcinogenic compound. And this is something new in food science that, 
that we've only just known the last couple of years. So that's, you know, number two reason okay. never to refrigerate your potatoes. <laughs> um, and, and, and I've seen experiments where, you know, they put them in all different kinds of places, you know, in a cool room is good, as cool as it can get. Um, if you wanted a plug-in solution, um, an old beverage cooler or if you have a wine cooler in, in storage that never got used, it might be just perfect for okay. potatoes. Yep, yep, yep. But they need to be pr- protected from light and be as cool as you can get without going below 45 degrees. Um, but then the kicker is good air circulation. Oh, really? So... Yeah, so there was this one method that I'd read about different places where <laughs> you dug a hole and put a garbage can in the hole and then refilled it so that you have a buried garbage can and put the potatoes in that. Well, I I tried it and it should have worked, um, but there was no air circulation in there. And, you know, a bit of dampness and the potatoes started getting you know, kind of moldy. Yeah. So it didn't work for me. Huh. Um, it's because of that air circulation thing. I have a basement um, that once once the weather gets cold, potatoes do great down there. Well, and this is where, so you've got the laundry basket, but what's great about the laundry basket is they're vented, right? They Because they, you, yes. you don't so, want so smelling. they're getting some air. Yeah, my favorite place is an open bin under my bed. Oh, you're <laughs> Because kidding. I can't sleep in a hot bedroom. So it's always in the summer when it's hot, <laughs> it's the coolest room in the house. And under the bed, it's dark and it's cool. And so the, the first summer potatoes go in an open bin covered with a towel really? up under the bed. And they do great under there. I would have never um, guessed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or and if if you do have a cool basement and have a, a chest, a small chest of drawers or any kind of drawers that are not being used, even without the chest, just the drawers stuck on top of one another, those can be useful for potatoes. Oh, that's a great idea. And um, so you know, I, it depends on your climate. I know some people that are able to just store them outdoors because their winters get cold, but not too cold. So. Very, very interesting. Now, before we move into section four on fruits, we have to discuss chard. You mentioned something I didn't know about on page 214 in your introduction to chard. I'd love for you to read that first couple of paragraphs and then let's chat about varieties and processing. Okay, because uh, most people think of chard as, as all colorful, but here's the first paragraph. If you want only a few plants from which to pick fresh leaves for cooking, choose a white-stemmed chard like Fort Hood Giant or Silverado. White-stemmed varieties are not as showy as those with colored stems, but they consistently outperform their more colorful counterparts in terms of productivity and bolt resistance. See, once upon a time, and it was not that long ago, it was maybe 30 years ago, all chard was white chard. The white-stemmed variety was Swiss chard. The color varieties have been around since the time of the Romans, but they were just not cultivated in gardens. There was a strain that some Australians picked out that had colorful stems. I mean, the colorful stems have been around, but it wasn't until um, Bright Lights, which was marketed by Johnny's and won an All-America selection. I, I know it's been 25 years ago. Um, just kind of opened the door 
for the color charts. But the color charts are beautiful, and, and I love to grow them. But if you were only going to grow one and you wanted high productivity, then you want white charts. Yeah. See, and I didn't know that. Yeah. So since then, now I know I could get a packet of all orange chard or all yellow chard or, you know, all these day glow pink chard that I've grown before. So I like them all. And the good thing about working with a mixture of chard seedlings like um, the Bright Lights mixture or another one, you can tell what color they're going to be as soon as they germinate. The stem of a yellow chard is yellow from day three. So that if you want to, you know, chard is great for edible ornamental gardens, you know, because it's so pretty, especially in locations where the sun shines behind the leaves. They look like stained glass. Yeah, they do. That It's one of my, I know the first time I grew Swiss chard, I was walking along my western garden at sunset and the sun was hitting that and I was just like oh my goodness that's when I fell in love with it I know it's so pretty and but if and and chard goes grows really really well um especially in the central midwest where some of the other greens are a little prone to to have problems see chard is very heat resistant and even in hot weather it still tastes good so you can have, you know, weather that goes from real hot to real cold and the chard is still going to be happy. But those white chards, if you had a small garden and you only had room for a few plants and you just want to be able to pick chard every few days, then all you need is like two or maybe three white chard plants and you'll have a summer supply. Well, the red Swiss chard, when you come in with that, it almost looks like rhubarb. It does. It does. And and the, each uh, individual plant is going to look just a little bit different in how red it is and how red the veins are. And they look like rhubarb, but they're related to spinach. So you're really looking at a spinach relative when you're playing with chard. Oh, interesting. Now, one thing I saw you wrote is when you set aside several ribs of the chard, pull off the any long strings from the outside of each one. I've never encountered that. Well, I think it's going to vary with the growing conditions. And of course, with a stringy vegetable, and, and what you're saying is you, yours is not stringy. Yeah. That's because you're, you're picking it on time. Oh. <laughs> it always feels so terrible to go out and pick chard and put it on the compost pile. But that's what happens if you don't pick it on time and then, you know, those outer leaves start looking awful. But sometimes vegetables that aren't supposed to be tough will get tough because of stress. And so if you had chard that was stringy, you know, okay. it's just like like celery. Sure. You know? Yeah, that makes sense. Well, your section four covers fruits for the homegrown pantry. You have a marvelous introduction to this section here with many great points. So I thought if you could just read this section introduction first, then we could have a discussion about the benefits of incorporating fruits into your landscape or into your garden. Yeah, I'd like to because you know, the, the the self-sufficiency model calls for you to put in a home orchard and, you know, plant this and plant that. And no, 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 no. You know, if you only have a couple of fruits that you 
get in your landscape and grow well, you're going to be happier. So let me do the introduction because you have a great idea. Yeah, let's, let's do what you say. If you want to save money while eating better fruit than you can buy, the simple answer is to grow a selection of fruits and berries suited to your climate. You don't have to worry about spray residues on raspberries or pears you grew yourself using organic methods. And the purity issue carries over into the kitchen, too. From apple jelly to blackberry wine, stocking your pantry with treasures made from homegrown fruits is serious fun for self-provisioning gardeners. Selected fruits can do double duty in the landscape. For example, you might use a thicket of prickly blackberries or raspberries as a deer deterrent hedge, or let a pair of dwarf cherry trees anchor an ornamental bed in a sunny front yard. Strawberries often are happy to grow on slopes or along the base of a fence, and you can use grapes as arbor plants to create shade during the summer months. Where to begin? Berries make fabulous foundation plants in an edible landscape and often begin bearing at a young age. So start by finding sweet spots for these forgiving plants. Next, move on to tree fruits and check with your extension service for tree fruits recommended for your area. Plant the best adapted, most disease-resistant cultivars you can find. With a solid investment of follow-up care and patience, you will soon be enjoying the best fruits in the world. And we have to say that that, there's a picture of blueberries there, which is my lead fruit at my house. That's your lead fruit and a beautiful... That is my lead fruit. (laughs) (laughs) And a beautiful shrub to incorporate into your landscape. Yes. And, you know, there are other... The good thing about blueberries, where I'm, I'm in zone six, it's a perfect home the northern high bush type blueberries and and so they're very happy. They grow wild in this area. They're a three season bush because they bloom very early in the spring and draw in interesting little early season pollinators and then have the blue fruits in the summer and then they turn a reddish color in the fall. So they're really pretty. You know, I think if I lived a little farther north and was looking for a double-duty fruit, one of the first ones I'd look at would be the black currants. The black currants? Why is that? Because it's a beautiful bush. It would work in a foundation planting, you know? They're just pretty. (laughs) Interesting. Now, have you tried honeyberries at all? No, but I would. If I lived a little farther north, I would be looking at honeyberries as a blueberry alternative because they have much more cold tolerance. I think they're hardy to minus 35 Fahrenheit, something like that. The honeyberries, and and we should explain it, they're kind of new coming into commerce, but they're actually an edible honeysuckle. They're of the same genus as honeysuckles, Alonisera. Huh. I just bought two, so that's why they're on my mind. And whenever I think blueberry now, I always think honeyberry. It's a great choice. Well, I was interested, whenever I hear the word tundra in a plant, the variety of the honeyberry that I picked had tundra in it. And I thought, well, perfect, because I live in Minnesota. But the berry, it's kind of a, a mind trick on you because it looks and the color is the blue of a blueberry, and it tastes like a blueberry, but it's kind of shaped like a grape, like a skinny grape. It's kind of elongated, and with uh, some of them are almost triangular. Yeah. So they are a funny shape. But I think that you're going to love them because, from what I hear, 
uh, in northern climates to go with either the honeyberry or the Saskatoon oh. um, or Haskat is good choices. That I think the University of Saskatchewan has done some wonderful work developing the Saskatoon. One of the things that you distinguish between on the back of your book, you talk about gardeners should understand which fruits to dry and which fruits to freeze. What's your guidance? Yes. What's your guidance here? Well, personally, it has to do with how I'm going to eat them. And, and whether or not they are seedy. If you were to take a seedy fruit, for example, a delicious red raspberry is a great fruit, but it's seedy. And you dried it, all you're going to have is seeds with dried red stuff around them. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just not going to be that good. If it's something very seedy, I'm much more likely to juice it and then make jam, make syrup, make wine, you know, do something with the juice. Blueberries can be dried and, and they're not difficult to dry with some berries. It's important to do what's called checking, which is to put them in a colander and pour boiling water over them and it helps the skins to uh, not be as functional. They have little waxy plates is what makes up a blueberry skin and when you pour that boiling water over it, it kind of loosens up those little plates and then oh. you could put them in the dehydrator and dry them. But they're not going to be all that great okay. because you wouldn't have even noticed the seeds if you were eating the blueberries fresh or, or baking with them after they'd been frozen. But once you dry them, you think, oh, where did all these seeds come from? Good point. So, right. But other things are great to dry, you know, and, and you can freeze things and then change your mind and, and dry them. Or cherries, for example, dry better if they've been frozen first. Really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in fact, if you want those kind of dried strawberries that are nice and chewy, you should go ahead and, and slice them and put sugar on them as if you were freezing strawberries or cherries to use as a dessert topping. And then after at least a few days, thaw them out and dry them. Then they're chewy and and sweet and kind of what we're used to in terms of the commercial version. So to get that sweet, leathery strawberry, the key is the sugar. Yeah, Yeah, I think part of it is that the freezing and thawing process breaks down tissues. Okay. And so there has been some, you know, changing of the structure of the tissues. And that's certainly true if you wanted to ferment things into wine. For example, right now I've got 30 pounds of pared apples in my freezer Mm. that when I'm in the mood (laughs) and don't have as much to do, I'll make apple wine. I'll make a batch of apple wine from the frozen apples. And because they've frozen and thawed, they're just ready to ferment. What's the difference between apple cider and apple wine? The alcohol content Historically, apple cider, and we'll just look at colonial America during the time of the founding fathers. See, there were not honeybees in North America, and there were not sugar-producing plants. So there was no ready source of sugar. And to make apple cider, you can just juice the apples, and there's wild yeast present there. And if you just let it ferment in a cool place you'll get something that's 5 to 6% alcohol if the apples were nice and sweet. 
Now, if you are able to add sugar, you can run the alcohol content up higher to uh, usually wine is 9% to the, the highest alcohol wines or red wines that can go as high as 13. But a wine is going to have sugar added at the front end so that the alcohol content will be higher. And that makes it more stable in storage. You can't store apple cider for a long time. And so the alcohol is also the preservation part, too. Yes. But John Adams was in in apple country in uh, Massachusetts, and it said that he had a pint of apple cider for breakfast every morning. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I don't know that I could do that every day for breakfast. I know. Just go down to the, the basement and fill your tankard, and <laughs> yes. that's what you're having for breakfast. I, I mean, the day starts looking pretty good. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> the eternal optimist. Now we know why. Right. Out of curiosity, what's your favorite fruit and recipe in this section of your book? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I'm kind of a fruit nut. So, you know, um, since I grow so many blueberries, I'm I'm well-versed in blueberry cooking, but I didn't put my favorite recipe for blueberry buckle in there. (laughs) You know, one of the things that I'd never done was... I dried seedless grapes that somebody grew. A friend of mine had some and and gave me a bunch of grapes. And those are delicious. They make commercial raisins look shabby. Really? Oh, yes, because they're big and you can dry them till they're not as dry as most raisins, still kind of soft and pillowy. Oh, man, were those good. I stored them in the freezer. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I see. I did put the recipe in there. It's so simple for what we call grape drink. Um, Not many grapes really grow well in the southeast because it's so humid and we have a lot of diseases. But you can grow good old blue Concord grapes. You know, most people can grow blue Concord grapes, which are very seedy. And what people do is just put them in a quart canning jar with some sugar and top it off with water and can it. That's it. And then when you're ready to have a grape drink, you just strain out the grapes and you have this delicious grape drink. Can't get any easier than that. No. (laughs) Honestly, you have to share. What is your blue buckle? Tell me a little bit more about that. There's so many things that you can do by combining butter, sugar, and flour. (laughs) This is one of them. Um, But whether it was a blueberry buckle or an apple buckle or whatever, Half of the butter that would go into, for example, making a blueberry cake doesn't go into the cake part of the buckle. It's held out and put on top with butter and cinnamon. And as this, it's basically a blueberry cake with this buttery cinnamon topping on it. And as it bakes, it forms a crackled topping over the cake. And that's why they're called buckles. Oh my gosh. That's but, you know, I read about my mother and, and her huckleberries uh, that grew near our house. And yes. so, and my brother, who's still in Mobile, grows rabbit eye blueberries. And so we've been collecting family recipes for blueberries as long as I can remember. And then I have a friend that lives here in Virginia named Virginia. She brought this blueberry buckle to a covered dish dinner. And it just, it's the best blueberry thing I've ever (laughs) made. And 
in a small town like this, when you're going to have an event, it really helps to do food. And I think I make about 15 of these in the course of a year to take to different community events. And uh, it's just like my signature thing. I could do it in my sleep. Well, and then if you don't bring it, I'm sure you hear that you let them down because I'm sure they're expecting it. Barbara Pleasant's coming with her blueberry buckle. Yeah, you know, it's film night and she didn't bring the buckle. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, I love it. We play cards once a month with our church and my kids are learning too. We play 500 and we've got a guy that makes creme brulee. And, you know, not everybody can make creme brulee, but he can make creme brulee. And when Mike does not come with creme brulee and when Lee does not come with his signature meatballs, it's just not the same. Yeah, mm. it's great when you can be known for a particular dish. It's wonderful. Oh, yeah. And you, and you get to look forward to the different things that people bring during different times of year. You know, this is one of the advantages of living in community, you know. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Absolutely. The last section of your book is called Herbs for the Homegrown Pantry. And you break this section into kitchen herbs and then tea herbs. Are mm-hmm. you are you a big tea drinker? And then if you are, I'm assuming that you are, how do you ease folks into this lovely habit? Well, I'm a tea drinker after I've been tanked up on my morning ration of coffee. So <laughs> I don't want anybody to get the impression, oh, Barbara doesn't drink coffee. We need to give her tea. No, if I'm at your house and it's morning, I need coffee. But we don't um, buy sugary drinks or bottled drinks anymore. We use herb teas. And some of it's homegrown and some of it's herb teas I, I grow. And then um, a combination of the two is very popular. Uh, once and maybe twice a summer, I will give in to a root beer. But um, we really try not to. And so we drink herb tea. I mean, we keep celestial seasonings in business. If you're going to have lots of pea herbs around, and we do, because mints grow like crazy and... Um, earlier in the summer, a neighbor brought me two big bags of holy basil, and I dried that. Oh, wow. And so what I do, actually, is take one tea bag of, like, red zinger and then a tea ball full of my dried herbs and oh. make a quart of tea. You do? And so it has the color that the commercial product puts in, but my mints and stuff like that. Tea herbs are so easy and any good tea herb, you, you crush it in your hand and it smells so good. And I have two or three different kinds of mint and, I don't know, lemon balm. That comes back every year. I don't think you can get rid of it. And some other tea herbs. It's fun. It's not just uh, the herbs for tea as much as thinking in terms of drinking what your garden has to offer too, whether that's different kinds of fruit juices. We have the most wonderful tomato juice going down right now in the refrigerator. (laughs) So um, drinking from your garden too helps keep you away from the bottled drinks. People don't drink as much, especially the sugary drinks as they used to and the artificial sweeteners and none of them are perfect. So, yeah. We've seen that transformation in my own family, so I I can appreciate that. 
if you and I were going to make a tea garden together with herbs, what would be your top 10 list of things you'd want to plant in that garden? And by the way, there is a great resource for this in your book. You list a lot of the herbs that that are great for teas. But what makes your top 10 list, Barbara? Well, I think the mints, and, and that's plural because they're also very different. Now, I would never again grow what's called spearmint. It's just too much of a thug that <laughs> I had that thing cross under a sidewalk. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> it, it was so invasive. Um, but right now I have a, a, the peppermints are much better behaved, and I have apple mint, and um, a friend has another kind of mint. You know, and you could just give them your own names because they're all a little bit different. Tulsi basil, which is not really like basil at all. It, it's much more of a tea herb. It recedes itself. once Once you have it, you know, it'll just keep coming back and you can move it around a little bit. Really easy. And, but, you know, I think I grow a lot of catnip, which, you know, for for the cats, but it's a great tea herb and so really? easy to grow. Huh. And then I let it bloom and it is the best pollinator pleaser in, in my whole garden. So I couldn't be without that one. Wow. But, you, you know, just about any herb that's, that's coming on at any given time, you can throw it into the teapot, you know, or the, the teas. Now, I got another question for you on your mints, and I was so happy to see it that you listed it. It's apple mint. Yes, yes. It's, it used to be called woolly mint because... The leaves are covered with little tiny hairs, but I think that's what gives it its punch. Yes. It's my favorite mint for tea. And it is. You know, homemade mint tea made with fresh mint has a vibrance to it that's very unique. And as somebody that has apple mint, you probably know what I'm talking about. There's no mistaking that this is a garden tea. Yeah. You know, the other thing I'm always surprised about, because I show people my apple mint when they come through, because a lot of people aren't familiar with it, is the fact that my apple mint can get about three feet tall. It get, it just oh, yeah. Yeah, loves, yeah. loves the garden. Right. And sometimes I, I have recommended it to people who said, what can I grow on a slope? Oh. They wanted some kind of productive plant to grow on a slope. And right. I don't think there's anything better That's than apple idea. nut. I know? like that idea. That's a great idea. Now, um, do you think, because sometimes I feel this way, um, do you think that people are overly critical of mints or, or afraid of mints? I, I don't know. I mean, my perspective is that they're not that hard to pull. No, you're right. They're not that hard to pull. And once you decide, okay, I I had a bed last year that was full of apple mint. And I decided you're not going to be here. You're going to be over there, you know. Because, you know, some of the plants that are survivors will show you that, oh, I don't have to grow there in your garden. I, I can grow over here just as happily. <laughs> and then digging them out is not that bad, you know. I, I've even dug out spearmint, and it goes away. Now, there's some plants that you know, that don't, that doesn't work so well with Canada thistle. It keeps coming back. One of our favorite ones, horseradish. I don't know how you can ever actually dig it out. (laughs) You decide you didn't want it. You could mow it and mow it and mow it and mow it and get rid of it. But digging it out just makes it mad. (laughs) Gosh. Well, there sure is a picture of a very cute kitty on page 312. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> I have two, but he's the one that wants to get in the pictures. Oh, wow. Well, he's pretty. He's handsome. Boy, you're talking about Mr. Magnus. <laughs> he's not purebred. He was a foundling kitty. But we later realized he was what my daughter said was a ragdoll kitty. Oh. He automatically poses for pictures. You know, and if there is a camera around, it's like, okay, I need to get up and, and be part of this now. But, you know, like say he's he's sitting a certain way on the deck and I say, you know, I want you to sit. You can kind of mush a, a ragdoll into shape and they will hold the pose. <laughs> Are you kidding? No. <laughs> oh he, he's been a, a funny old boy. Um, when the photographer first came the first day, he took like 80 pictures of Magnus and 20 pictures of fruits and vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the the good thing about being human and living as long as we do is we have all these opportunities to love cats and dogs. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. And I have to say that right inside the cover... There's a great picture of you by a plant, but I can't make out what it is. And you're holding some of it in your hand. What is that? I think that is lemon balm there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Lemon balm. I guess okay. we were talking herbs that day. I can tell by the puppies in the back that this was, oh, and there's garlic still. I think this was the first shoot, which would have been in June. Wow. Yeah, that's a great shot. Is That, that has to be one of your favorite pictures, isn't it? Well, you know, after a certain age... It's like, what do you want? <laughs> you, get, you have to be one of the things that is distinctive, I think, about this book is it has a legitimate authority. And one of the reasons it does is because I have years of experience. And yes. so you, you can't be, a, you know, a fashion model and pull this off. Well, and uh, you made a point along the lines of you have to grow it to know it. And you can't grow it all in a year and get it figured out. It takes years. It's a skill. And you'll have excellent luck with something year after year. And then the summer will go wonky on you and you, and you won't have a good year with something you thought was an ace in the hole. And then other things will surprise you. So for Every crop that maybe doesn't do so well when you know, something else will do well. So. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It just takes time. And like I mentioned, I, it pushed me into trying food preservation projects I had never tried before. You know, cold storage methods I'd never used before. You know, varieties I'd never grown before. And so even with 35 years experience, I had so much to learn. And every nonfiction book author should be able to say that, you know. But I'm still learning. And, and that's one point I want to make is you don't master, you know, this, this um, kitchen gardening thing. It's like, okay, we're done, you know. Last year, unexpectedly, all of my garlic and onions were hit with a pest. You know, it's mm-hmm. not unusual for me to see a few of these onion maggots they're called little worms but last year they were you know like and half of the onions well i made onion jam hmm. and it was delicious really it was like slightly sweet and it was a wonderful sandwich spread or the beginning of many salad dressings it was delicious this year 
I didn't have that problem with onions, but I'm making tomato jam. Tomato jam. What is that? Well, when you're canning tomatoes, a lot of times you have juice left over. Okay. <laughs> so I'll, I'll put the juice in the refrigerator and let the solids settle out and then take the clear part off. And then I use this product called Pomona Pectin that enables you to reduce the sugar in your jams and jellies by more than half. Okay. It's a calcium-activated pectin. At any rate, in my first batch, because you can go on the internet and find other people's recipes and ideas, but then you have to do it and find out, does it work? And yes. So my, my first batch was pretty good. And in fact, Roger had, he says, I'm having tomato jam on my toast. And the concept I had was cream cheese crackers with tomato jam on top. But it turns out we're eating tomato jam for breakfast, too. So it has okay. just enough sugar to balance um, some vinegar, or you could use lemon juice for acidity, but I'm pretty sure I used vinegar in the first batch. I think this afternoon I'm going to make another one, and it'll it'll be better. My gel rate was a little low, I'll have to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Even me, everything doesn't turn out perfectly. There are some things that always turn out, but when you're into new territory, the first batch may not be perfect. Well, and that's just it. It's the refinement process and what we think, you know, when you say tomato jam, I've got something in my mind and it might be different than, you know, how your tomato jam is. And so you do kind of have to play with a little bit. And yeah, yeah, this. yeah. And find out how how much sugar do you really need and, you know, all that kind of thing. So. Yeah. Well, you said something, I think it's kind of a nice way to wrap things up here. When we were talking in the pre-chat, you said... Once upon a time, we all had grandmothers that gardened. Yeah, yeah. Or somebody in the family that knew gardening or that knew food preservation, you know. You know, like the family I came from, my dad was the gardener. My mother ran the kitchen. And it's not like she put up a whole lot, but she wasn't going to let anything go to waste. <laughs> <laughs> so there's nobody to, to, to teach. Uh, you can go to food preservation courses and and then you'll learn some things. But I think what I wanted this book to be is it could be that grandmother or that aunt or, you know, that friend who knew how to do these things. Because there's nothing like it when you're taking on a new food preservation project to have someone there, you know, helping you and, and pointing out the little bitty things mm-hmm. that you do. I know I was helping a friend with her first time ever making jams and jellies. She had a bushel of peaches (laughs) and together we took care of those peaches. And as she was bringing the jars out of the water bath canner, she was letting them kind of jiggle around. And I remember having to come up with a tactful way to say, you don't want any food getting on that seal until it's popped. (laughs) (laughs) But little things like that. How much How much space to leave, you know? Honestly. Well, I tell you what, Barbara, this has been a true pleasure. And I thank you for providing your lifetime of wisdom with us here, which is another thing that we talked about is you've gardened for over 30 years. 
I like it, you know, and, and the gardening has changed so much. It continues to just be more and more interesting. I still look forward to the new varieties coming out. And um, we have a little gardener's group around here where we go to each other's gardens, you know, and look and see how things are going. And I'm, I'm still very much into it. I love it. I love it too. And you're available or people can find you. You do have a website. Yes, you have- I have a website. I'm barbarapleasant.com and I've got a page, the Homegrown Pantry, Barbara Pleasant Homegrown Pantry page on Facebook and then myself. You're welcome. I'll be your friend if you want to be my friend. And if your picture shows either flowers or vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I tell you what, you're on Facebook if people want to track you down and and your website's gorgeous and you also have written other books. This is not your first book. Sure, people, I have a lot of books. Yeah, yeah. You want to tell people mm-hmm. a few other things that you've written that they might be interested in if they like the you whole thing. You know, if you're a new gardener, if you're a new gardener just trying to figure things out and don't want to be overwhelmed and want, you know, some nice gentle hand holding. Starter Vegetable Gardens is the book I wrote just for you. Okay. <laughs> and, you you know, you'd think that keeping things very simple and clear is easy, but it's not. Yeah, you're right. Um, you know, especially with gardening when there's so many things, if this, then that, and, yeah. and to try to keep it very clear. But I'm proud of that book, of Starter Vegetable Gardens. And this morning, what I did for my gardening activity was I turned one of the compost piles. And one of my books I love is The Complete Compost Gardener's Guide. And it has all kinds of cool things on compost. And But actually, you know what? One of my best sellers is The Houseplant Survival Manual. Really? Yes. Yes. And I still, I love my houseplants and I love helping people with their houseplants. And, you know, where where my book comes in is when you've adopted a houseplant and it's six weeks later and it's dying. (laughs) (laughs) I've got one of those. We'll have to talk about that. I know. A lot of people do. Or if you go outside people's back doors, that's where you see the little houseplant morgue lined up, you know. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? Well, lots of great resources there. I'm glad I mentioned that. Now, this show will air in September, September 8th. And I know that later in the month, you'll be at a Mother Earth News event. That's right. I'm going to be at the Mother Earth News Fair in Seven Springs, Pennsylvania, which is south of Pittsburgh. And I always look forward to that. It's it's so wonderful to get together with gardeners and and talk. The very day this goes out, I'm going to be at Thomas Jefferson's home in Monticello. Really? I look forward to that. I'm kind of a history buff, and this is where gardening and history comes together every fall at Monticello. The Harvest Heritage Harvest Festival is what it's called. So I get out some. (laughs) Yes. Well, I know you mentioned you teach, you do a lot of classes, you're an author, uh, you're very busy. You do a lot to help people learn about gardening, which is fantastic. Yeah, I hope that I've helped enrich people's lives by giving them the information that they were looking for or that they needed to take it to the next level. Well, you certainly accomplished that today, Barbara. I think that was fantastic. I learned a ton from you and your book. And if people are interested, where can they find a copy of your book? Well, it's at all the major bookstores, and of course, it's available on Amazon. And through my website, if you want to go and find out more about any of my books, there's pages. And you know, I did not know until recently 
that through IndieBound, which is I-N-D-I-E Bound, you can get a book sourced to your favorite local bookstore online, you know, three clicks. As easy as ordering online to, to order locally through IndieBound at your local bookstore. Oh, that's a great idea. Thank you very much yeah. for that. Well, Barbara, thank you for being on the show. It was an absolute pleasure. We learned a ton. I just value your insight and wisdom so much. So thank you. Well, thanks so much for having me on. It's been a great time. That's it for our show today, featuring the wonderful and wise garden author, Barbara Pleasant, and her book, Homegrown Pantry, A Gardener's Guide to Selecting the Best Varieties and Planting the Perfect Amounts for What You Want to Eat Year-Round. I hope you enjoyed the tips Barbara shared from decades of her own gardening experience, covering planting, care, and harvesting refreshers, and helping us keep our pantry stocked through Throughout the year. I so appreciate learning from garden masters like Barbara, don't you? I'm also thankful to my team at Podfly Productions. I want to thank Eric Begay, my editor, Ein Kadena, my copywriter, and my project manager is David Gregerson. Just a reminder, I'll have all of the generous information that Barbara shared on the show today over at my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And then just click on podcast and the show notes for this episode will come right up. I'd also like to thank the people who make up my listener advisory board. Beth Engel, Beth Gardens in Illinois. She works at Griffin, a national brokerage firm and one of the finest companies in horticultural service. And Beth is also a board member of the PPA, the Perennial Plant Association. Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine. Amy Von Atchen, Patricia Chandler Newport. Patricia is the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens out of Kego Harbor, Michigan. Deb Gibson, and Peggy Ann Montgomery. Peggy Ann is the brand manager at American Beauty's Native Plants, and she was also featured back in episode 553, where we talked all about incorporating more native plants into your garden. Well, I hope you're able to spend some time in your garden this week, and while you're at it, try some of the tips that Barbara shared with us during today's show. It's a busy time of year as we plant the fall garden, and also continue to harvest. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. 